This is, for me, the first sermon I feel like I really am going to preach, have preached, I'm really preaching, in like three months. And we did it two weeks ago, right, like this here. But I knew I was going on this 10-day getaway. And it's, it's really not fair to call it a vacation. Um, vacation has a beach involved in my mind somehow. Uh, this was visiting family, which is usually what I do when I take my time off from St. Paul's. I go, I visit my folks. Uh, my father is a church worker, a lifelong church worker, and he's 80. And he, he's not as spry as he once was. How many years I have left, I don't know. But it was good to see him. That's also the first time in over a year that I took time away, not only from Rockford and to see my family, but where I didn't work all the way through for you. And it's to say, every time I've taken vacation since last fall, I didn't take a vacation at all. I just worked from somewhere else uh, in order to keep the many confusing things that happened last fall with regards to the planting of Resurrection Lutheran congregation down there and all the, the fallout of that. It led to a lot of work for us. And so this was the first time I've been able to really unplug and get away. And it was very helpful. It was very beneficial. I've heard also that you, uh, as you're, you do, those of you who experienced Pastor Anderson filling in felt very confident about him. That's wonderful to hear. He's a friend of mine. I'm glad you received him well. But now again, here we are back and we're sort of as close to normal as we're going to get for a while. And there's a number of questions like I already talked about with you, although anyone online doesn't know, you know, what are our service times going to look like in a month and who needs what kind of teaching? But what I got to tell you right off the bat here is that whatever else we're doing, if you're not in this service, I really want you to go and try and find this sermon <laughs> every week. Because if the great danger as a congregation of having a bunch of private services and a couple smaller services and one big service, or even just having two big services, is you kind of have two congregations. And the closer the pastor can keep his message the same through those two services, the better. The more likely you're all going to be built with the same mind, which ideally is the scriptures. But in the case of what we've been doing recently, I have to preach a different sermon every 15 minutes or so. And it's, it's been fun, but it's not the same as building you together as a group. And we got to get back on that, right? So my plea to you is that no matter what service you go to, and you're a Christian at every single one of these services, and they're there because risk management is a real thing for Christians to think about. But whichever one you go to, you're a Christian, and I want you to try to hear the longer sermon that comes out of, at the moment, the late service. It's on YouTube right now, and we will try to make sure that in the mailings, we're giving you a way to easily type that into your browser, your internet, and get there. In any case, there's my pitch to you for that. The other thing I'm not sure how much I should push you on here is how patient are you going to be at this service? If I go 25 minutes, that's what I used to do. I'm pretty sure you'll be okay. What if I go 35 today? What if I did 45 today? You're stuck now, right? Um, the trick is, I'm pretty convinced that what made us survive as a congregation through this madness is two things. Our commitment to the body and blood of Jesus, given in, with, and as that bread and wine for your life, and because we kept coming to that, we want to keep coming now. We want to keep coming back. Other congregations are mentioning how they're opening up and they're getting low numbers. Well, if you didn't teach people through the crisis that the supper is the thing that mattered, every time you're on the internet and you're saying, this is church, but you don't get supper. If you don't say the supper is the thing that matters, who's going to come back after? I mean, I'll tell you, it's easier to watch it on TV in my lazy boy than it is to get up and come here. Why do you come here? For the bread and the wine. That's why you come here. And that has kept us afloat along with our commitment to believing 
that whatever would make St. Paul survive the decline we were facing over the last 15 years, it was going to be founded upon believing the scriptures at all costs. And we would understand these words as the reason St. Paul was started and the reason it will continue if God wants it to. So with that then said, I come across these three texts from this morning, Elijah on the mountain of Sinai, and this 1 Corinthians text about the word that is folly to us, but we must believe it. And then finally, this weird story about fishing and St. Peter. And I don't want to preach on one of these. I want to preach on all of these. Can I do it in 20 minutes? Maybe. Could I do it in 45? For sure. Absolutely. We'll see. We'll do a little test today. You tell me if I go too long. I have no plan for time. We're going to walk through each of these texts. We're going to hit the gospel at the end and bring it all together. And hopefully you don't even notice the time passing. You're just absorbed in the text. Now, if you brought your Bible with you, that's going to be helpful at this point, especially. So again, starting with 1 Kings chapter 19, tough to find 1 Kings. It's in the middle of the Bible, and it's not one we go to a lot. This story about Elijah, though, is very famous. It's so famous, it gets used all the time in non-Lutheran churches. So the first thing I want to do is make sure I tell you several Lutherans were so like this. What does it not mean? Uh, Rather than tell you what it means, what does it not mean? Because it's out there. It's out there that Elijah's on this mountain and God comes and speaks to him. And there's this huge, huge set of wind and breaking rocks. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, the highest level Marvel timeline end of, you know, universe movie kind of stuff, bursting rocks asunder. He's sitting there in the cave watching this all go on, but God's not there in the wind. And then there's the fire. God's not there in the fire all outside this inferno like Sinai was of old. And then there's also this earthquake, which is separate from the rocks bursting. And God's not in any of that either. And you probably know all this. You've heard this speaks to Elijah. Now, who is that? And how does that apply to you today as a Christian? I'll tell you what most preachers will tell you, which is that the still small voice is the spirit of God speaking to you within your heart. And so if you'll just stop and listen to your heart and seek God's will, he'll speak to you. That's a lie straight from the devil. No two bones about it. It's telling you you're God and you're God's conduit. But God's conduit is Jesus. And while you certainly have the spirit of God in you, insofar as the scriptures are in you, because that is his work upon you, the spirit makes you know the scriptures. Insofar as that is the case, then absolutely you are a conduit of God's word. But not so much as that you get to make it up on your own just because you have the feelings. So what's really going on with this whisper? What's going on is that God's not in the power you would think he would be in. You would think he would be in fire and brimstone and strength because he's the creator of all as Elijah was. Well, he doesn't come that way. This will make more sense as well as we tie it to the gospel with Jesus in a few moments. But first, Elijah, who's this guy? If we'd stayed with our exile and return a whole year in the Old Testament, we would have gone through Elijah's life and dealt with Jehu as well. Jehu is one of the kings of northern Israel. He is the one who overthrows the house of Jezebel. Jezebel's made it so bad. Remember, she's the daughter of a witch who got married into the whole thing and has plans to kill the line of Judah. That's her main goal in life. Well, because of how bad that all gets, God decides he's not done with northern Israel yet, but he is going to wipe out the king descended from, I'm going to lose it now, uh, Jeroboam. He's going to wipe out Jeroboam's lineage all the way down to the last child and put this guy Jehu in his place. Jehu is pretty cool for like a chapter and a half, and then he turns into a bit of a fool after that, forgets that the Lord has been working for him, and his family line ends up as bad as Jeroboam's does. That's what 
Elijah on the mountain is told by God to go deal with now. Go tell Jehu he's going to kill Jezebel. Go put this other guy in charge of Damascus and get Elijah to take your place because you're about to die. Except you're not about to die, right? Because he goes up in fire and the flames and all that and the, the chariots. We'll leave that for another time. But before this, he's been living this life as a preacher and prophet on the run. He ain't kidding. All the prophets who proclaim Yahweh, the Lord, the one who will be Jesus, are being put to death. And over time, there are very few left. There's this amazing moment where he gets the people together and he has the duel of altars. You remember this? And fire comes down out of heaven. It consumes Elijah's altar, but it doesn't consume the prophets of Baal. The people, as a mob, and mobs are wont to do this kind of thing, they slaughter all 400 of the prophets of Baal. But that didn't bring back the dead prophets of Jesus. <laughs> so Elijah from there runs. He runs across a wilderness, sleeps by a tree, gets fed miraculously, and ends up at this mountain where he says to God, God says, why are you here? You're not supposed to be here, Elijah. What are you doing? You're supposed to be there preaching. Why are you here? Because I'm the only one left, he says. And I'm tired. And I don't know what to do. And I'm angry. That's what that jealous for the Lord of hosts part is. I'm angry. Well, God says, okay, fine. You're going to come home now. I'm going to put all these other play people in place. But before I let you go, Elijah, I'm going to tell you one thing. Verse 18, I will leave 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, at this time, if you looked at northern Israel on the surface, you would say it was not a Christian nation. You had so much nastiness going on, human sacrifices going on in Israel. So imagine going down to Friday night in Rockford and they got human sacrifices going on. That's how bad it was. And he says there's 7,000 Christians still in northern Israel. Not Judah. Judah's a whole other nation. In northern Israel, 7,000. Where are they, Elijah's want to ask. He thinks he's the only one. Well, that's the point. 7,000 is a special number. It's seven, which is the number of holiness. And it's 10, which is the number of completion. God's holy completion, 7,000. Normally, we would think of that also as tying to the number 12, which connects us to the church, which you might notice did show up in the story. How many oxen is Elisha, Elijah plowing with? Twelve. Ironic. Why does the author mention that? There's no real reason, except for he's pointing out twelve's important. So God has this guy actually have twelve oxen so that we can see now, oh, this is about the life of the church, from the holiness of God, that is completely able to withstand even Jezebel's kingdom. And for you, Christian, that should give you some hope today, don't you think? As bad as it is, it isn't quite like that. And we have a king. Elijah well, didn't have a king yet. We have a king. Now, moving into that idea, the New Testament, who is Jesus? Oh, I, I got to go back. Sorry. Still small voice. Who is the still small voice? Let me make sure you have the clear answer. When the still small voice speaks to Elijah, there's a first question. Did he hear it with his ears or just his heart? The answer is pretty obvious. Everywhere else in the scriptures where it says it this way, he heard it with his ears. This wasn't in his heart that he felt a small voice. He heard an actual whisper, Elisha, what are you doing here? Now, that would scare me to, the, to death and jeebies and back again. I'd run from the mountain, I think, if that actually came across my plate. But that's the kind of still small voice that was spoken. A real audible one. So you want to tie this to the Christian life. Where do we see the still small voice now? Super fast, day of Pentecost, wind, fire, earthquake, small voice, speaking large crowds. Who? St. Peter. The very guy who's going to show up in the gospel lesson in a moment. The still small voice is Jesus' scriptures and the preaching of the apostles. Attend to these things. And whatever else is raging around you, you, you cannot be pushed off. You cannot fall. All right. So this idea that I just shared with you, that the cross of Jesus Christ makes it that you cannot die. 
truly, yea, though you die, yet you will live. This is the word of the cross that is folly to those who are perishing. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is one of the most important segments of the Bible to reckon with if you really want to be a disciple. Like, you don't just want to sit and be an armchair Christian. You want to understand how to navigate the Bible. The way to do that is to get this section right here. You will be safe if you get that the word of the cross is foolishness to you, to your heart. Grace doesn't make sense. What your heart knows well is shame. You can see that all over our civilization right now. We know slavery was evil. We know black people have not had it well. We have so much shame over this as a society, a whole nation, that we're tearing ourselves to shreds trying to atone for it because we don't believe in forgiveness. We don't believe in hope. We just believe in shame. Cancel culture? Shame culture. Shame. The word of the cross is folly because it exposes the shame. The cross shows you your shame. There it is, Jesus. That body, I'm going to get off camera for a second. This body. When you see this, it's just a piece of wood, right? But it represents a real body that hung on a real cross. And it should be you. You should see yourself stretched out, nailed to this by God's own hand every time you see Jesus. And then you should say, thank God for Jesus. He did it to Jesus instead of me. But that word is stupid to everyone who doesn't believe it. Stupid. I use that word on purpose. It's a terrible word. It is stupid to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what everyone who doesn't believe it thinks, and they have to, because it kind of is if you're just working from human assumptions. People don't rise from the dead. We all know that plain and well. But there's a reason why God would give us something so foolish as his answer. It even tells us in the text. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To us who are being saved, it's not folly at all. It is. It says, the power of God, and how boring that sounds in English. Power of God. That's a big thing, right? Power is such a weak word, I guess, now in English. But you know, the, the almighty ability to shatter boulders with a breath, that's what is in now the foolishness of saying he is risen. That's stronger. It's harder to say he is risen, and the supernatural power working in you to make you say it is stronger than the power that would have to channel from you to crack a boulder and have water pour out. That's a pittance compared to turning you into a faithful believer who is convicted and knows this stuff and hungers for more. In this way, then, you can see why and where this power works precisely by not letting the human mind have its way. That's this next section, and it's, it's a little complicated, so I'm going to read slowly. It says, it is written, Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What that means is, God says, whatever you think it is, I'm not going to let it be that way. You think you figured it out? saved through me against you by showing you how you know nothing and I know everything over and over again. And the more you claim you know something, the more I've got to tear it down. Unless what you know is what I've said. Because when you know what God has said, now it's never going to be torn down. It will stand forever. So then he asks, St. Paul asks this, so where is today's wise man? Who's, who's the wise man today? You point one out to me. Elon Musk, Dr. Fauci, who? Where are they now, and how much hope have they given us for this age and this life? Not enough, I say. Where is the scribe? No, we don't have scribes today. Where is the learned scholar? Ah, if you haven't been following what's gone on in higher education, the idea of learned and scholar is almost oxymoronic at times these days. Where is the debater? 
The biggest voice in America right now is a man named Joe Rogan. He's in his 50s. He looks like I do when I'm not working in terms of his dress, his casual demeanor. He doesn't mind vulgarity whatsoever. He has millions of people listen to him every week. He's right smack in the middle of everything politically. And I do mean absolutely in the middle. Why is he the debater of this age? Why is an MMA comedian, the guy does martial arts and comedy, and he's where I look to to know what men who are my age are really thinking today. That's not much, I don't think, comedy and martial arts. They're good, but I need something more. And then here again, at the end of verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What does that mean? If you study gravity, you will discover very quickly it's obvious. You can understand it completely, and yet you have no idea what's going on. It's just there. You can observe it and, and let it be what it is. That is how God works. He lets us observe what he makes it be. He lets us test it, understand it, and see a vision of him through that, his, his design and his creative ability, his person even. But he will never let us see so far into it that we can say, I can do it ourselves. Obviously, you can craft a cup out of wood or something like that. But in terms of putting together DNA or even understanding the cosmic quantum universe that goes even smaller, these things are baffling scholars now. They have no idea what to make of creation because it's... And it says as much here that our wisdom has a limit, a wall against which it is set. And the chief of these things is thinking we can understand everything. We don't believe there's a wall that limits my head. That's my belief that I'm God. And so for that reason, because we think our head is God, it pleased God through preaching Jesus dead and raised again to not have it make sense right away. To have it be foolishness and miracle and unbelievable so that we couldn't look back and say, oh, I thought so all along. Because what we want, verse 22 tells us this, humans want one of two things. He says here, Jews and Greeks, but he means everybody. If you want to get into the racial fighting between Jews and Greeks, I mean, it still goes on today in different ways, but... The point is all of us want one of these two things. We want a sign or we want wisdom. By that we mean, I need God to fix something for me and if he will, then I'll believe in him. Or we mean, it must make sense to my head and then I'll believe in him. Signs and wisdom. That's what we as sinners want, but <laughs> he says in the next verse, you're not gonna get that in the church, at least not at first. We preach Christ crucified, it says. You wanna know how your life's supposed to work? You want to see the magic of God? Sorry, you got Jesus. Dead and raised again. But this everlasting Christ is sufficient. He is then, though, if you want a sign, if you want a miracle, he's a stumbling block. Here's his miracle. Bread and wine is him. Oh, I can't believe that's true. That can't be. Let's find another one. Dear Jesus, heal my wife. Right? That's what we want. He says, Here's, here I am in the supper. That's a stumbling block to our unbelief. Also, foolishness to the Gentiles. Anybody who's going to talk with you about Jesus is going to want to know why you think he's more important than all the other religions. They're going to ask why your religion is so distinct and what gives you the arrogance to think you could stand up and be different than everybody else. And if you're not ready to say, I believe something rather silly, this guy's not dead anymore, you're going to be caught off guard. So again, you have a way to confront the world and all that it says with the simple phrase, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And this foolishness to the world, it says, verse 25, is the wisdom of God that is wiser than men. And this weakness, the cross, the supper, the words, is the power of God that is stronger than men. So that if you'll bear with me, we're at 20 minutes right now, so I think we're doing pretty well. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Luke, the fifth chapter, 
can tie this all nicely up in a bow for us. It is one of the most odd stories, I think, and especially in the one-year lectionary as it's placed. This time in the one-year lectionary is after Easter. That means after the festival time of the church. During the festival time, Christmas to Easter, all the stories about Jesus are about his life moving from Christmas to Easter. So at Christmas, he's a baby. When the Magi come, he's, you know, he's two. We move through his life. But you can't get all the Gospels into the types of readings that we have in that time period in the year in the church. And so in this summertime series, we go back every year and we pick up all the parts of the Gospels that we missed as we can. When the one year did this centuries ago, they did an amazing job of picking some of the key stories. The wedding at Cana, feeding of the 5,000, raising of Jairus' daughter. And these are these are meaty stories here, right? Today we get, again, like the odd thumb. It's a little, it's a little different. The miraculous catch of fish. M my guess is you didn't run home and say, when you heard that story in Sunday school, why isn't there a comic book on the miraculous catch of fish? That would be cool. Why isn't there a movie? But part of it is because, well, the, the English doesn't do a good job of lifting up the chaos of what happened in this story. First off, you've got thousands of people coming to hear this guy Jesus to begin with. How often do you have thousands of people showing up to listen to people talk these days randomly? Not a ton, right? There's a big difference in their culture and ours, though, namely in communication, TV, internet, radio, all those things. If you had to live your life right now in your house without TV, radio, internet, and imagine you could still do your job, whatever it is, right? If you had some really interesting guy in downtown Rockford with a crowd of 2,000 people listening to him, my guess is you'd go down on a weekend to hear it. Yeah, he'd be pretty bored. When Douglas and Lincoln did their debates prior to the Civil War and the, the voting of Lincoln, who apparently is not a good man these days. I, I'm so confused about these things. But the debate between Lincoln and Douglas to try to get rid of slavery, it was actually you know, moving in that direction. It was anti-slavery at the, at the most realistic way. They went on a train together across the country. Can you imagine politicians doing this today? They're going on the same train together, go across the country. Every stop they got out, they had the same debate. Same questions every time. And the way it was told in the book I read years ago, the first debater was given two hours. And then the second debater was given an hour. And then the first debater was given another hour. And then they flipped the next day. So as a result, you would go and listen to four hours of a human being talking because you were bored to tears with farming and because it was kind of interesting and they made sense. And they were dealing with things that mattered to your country at that time. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. He was walking around, talking at length with people about what was going on. And it was so stunning that people couldn't stop listening to it all. And they went out, and so many are there now that he's by a lake, and he's, he's stepping in the water. I have a great memory of my wife and I in the Caymans where we went out and drank out of a coconut and got some food, and we danced in the little shoreline water by torches, tiki torches with music, one of my favorite memories of my entire life. But if I had a crowd of thousands of people pushing me back and I'm stepping in the water— not as calm, right? That's intense. He turns around. There's some boats. Some fishermen are coming in from the night. They're washing up their nets. All right, hey, I'm going to hop in this boat. Hey, I know you. You're Simon. We've talked before. Simon, would you push out just a little bit so I can keep teaching? That's what happens. But how well does he know Simon? And why does Simon say yes? Think about this again. What, two hours, three hours, seven hours sitting there talking in the boat to thousands of people. And this was, again, entertainment. It was life. It was more than we can imagine in our bored state that we are today. After it's all over is when our story happens. It doesn't even tell us what he talked about. I mean, there's other parables recounted other places, so we know a lot of what Jesus said. But it doesn't say, and he said. It says, after this, 
when he'd finished, he says to Simon. So now Simon's been getting, you've got to put yourself in this guy's shoes. He's working the, uh, the red eye. He's working eight, 10 hours fishing in the darkness. It's morning. He's done. He wants to go home. He didn't catch anything. I know how that feels. Not fishing per se, but life. And now some guy comes along and he's really famous and he wants to use your boat. Sure thing, man, you got in my boat. He uses my boat for six hours. And then after that, he says, now go back out to sea. You can understand why Peter says, master, we told all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And there's something absolutely glorious about that response, particularly its sinful condition. It's a terrible response. It's a terrible response. It's a little fit-throwing response. Well, Jesus, I've been doing this for a long time. I know you're king and lord and all, so I'm going to do what you said. But I'm going to let you know that I think it doesn't make any sense. Now, just so you know, that's the argument that is generally made against the Lord's Supper being the Lord's Supper. It is the argument that Calvinists make. Same one Peter makes right here. We'll do it, because he said to, but it doesn't make any sense. That's kind of what they get. <laughs> it's kind of sad. But what I love about it too, though, is what we all do all the time. God's word comes to us, it says repent. And rather than say, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Instead, we say something like, I don't think so. Or I disagree, or it's your fault. It's going to get a little worse for Peter, but the, the beauty of this, before it gets worse for him, is that as much as his flesh doesn't want to believe, he will not deny the Lord his words. He never rises up and says, Master, it doesn't make sense, and so I won't. And says, he says, Master, it doesn't make sense, but I will anyway. And that is the Christian life. Start to finish till the day we rise. You're going to see things that don't make sense, but you're going to trust the word Anyway, he goes out and they have this miraculous catch of fish. Again, it's almost impossible to imagine. I got to take out uh, my new old trade for type or trade for, for even kayak that I got to float around my little lake where the house that I just bought over here is on the back of. And I took it out yesterday for the first time with a canoe paddle. Not going to do that again. Circles. Um, <laughs> but also, it's been a while since I kayaked. I was reminded of how they're made to kind of go under the water a little bit and come back up. Yeah. These fishing boats were not unlike that. They, they were not big fishing boats. They were not like little fishing boats where you come out with your, your row oars and sit there. These are boats that are like large kayaks made to come across the water swiftly and pull a big drag net behind them. They are easy to capsize. You don't want to be in a storm in one of these things, as you might remember from certain other stories about Jesus. But um, in, in this case, though, you also normally would catch so many fish. You pull them up, you take them in, you sell them, you make your money. Not Net's worth. There's no such thing as a net's worth of fish that's going to break the nets. And then breaking the nets, they call to two other ships to come over. They put all the fish from the one net in the boat, several boats. And what happens? They start to go under the water. That's how many fish they were. And if you're a modern person, you're like, well, that's a coinkadink. I bet those stupid people caught 50 fish and thought it was a miracle. But if you're a Christian, you think Jesus just made fish start to swim out of nothing into a net for a reason. I'll tell you two of those reasons. The first is so that Peter would repent because that's what happens. Everyone else is probably excited. And you think about how much money Peter just made. Think about the best bumper crop or whatever you could bring in, the best bonus check you can get, million-dollar cash prize. All those fish for this guy, that's a lot of money. What does he do? He says, Jesus, leave me alone. Go away and don't come back. I'm too wicked. That's what he said. And again, I'm going to use the word shame. His shame speaks, and it doesn't repent. It doesn't say what Peter will get better at later. 
I'm sorry I was wrong to disbelieve you. It says I'm not worthy, leave me alone. Like a little child, angry. Ah, I did it wrong, go away. Huh? <laughs> it's true, though. The beauty of the whole thing is what Jesus does next. And Luke pauses to tell us, by the way, when Peter's thrown his little fit, his shame fit, James and John are watching. They work with him. <laughs> and they got a whole other crowd of people and the whole crowd on the shore watching all this go on. He's throwing a little fit. What does Jesus do? He walks up to him and says, you have nothing to fear. And then, not a direct quote, but the summary of the next thing he says is, I'm in charge of this whole thing. I knew you didn't believe in me. I know you still don't believe I'm going to die, but I'm here anyway. So you have nothing to fear, Peter. Let me give you a promise. And this is what Jesus does. We come, we try to repent, we fail. He promises more grace anyway. And his promise to Peter is pretty particular. You are going to be a fisher of men, he says. That is, you're going to be a leader in the church converting people to Christianity. We could chase that tangent and all the bad sermons preached on fishing as a result of it. But more important than that is to see that the fishing of men is not a pole-slinging thing. It's that dragnet thing I talked about earlier. And there's a story that Jesus does tell, which may well have been told right in this context, who knows, called the parable of the net. You may have heard it. It's pretty short. The kingdom of God is like a giant net that gets dragged through the water. There's a bunch of fish in it. And at the end of time, well, it doesn't quite say it that way, at the day that will come, the angels will separate the good from the evil. That's the parable. Now, you got two ways to look at that. This is the end of time, as I kind of mentioned earlier, and it's the judgment day. Bringing to bear the history of the church, dragging through history, right? Coming through the history of man, the church's life and its words has pulled this net into that day of resurrection in which the justified will stand and the wicked will be cast away. Fine interpretation. Um, I like this understanding a little bit better. There's room for disagreement on this. I think that maybe angels there refers to pastors, as in the book of Revelation it does as well. And that this is talking about how the church right now is a giant net dragging through history, and the angels, the preachers, are separating the good from the evil in one way and one way alone. Not by decision-making, just by repeating what's said in the scriptures. And as we repeat what's said in the scriptures, the net drags, and the good fish, the Christians, our believers, are caught, and the unbelievers, well, they go off to do what they're going to do. Now, what I want you to pull on this now hard, pull it all together into one big moment. Jesus said to, Jesus, uh, Jesus said to Peter, Go out, put the fish there, or put the nets there, you'll catch the fish. Peter says, it doesn't look like it'll work, but I'll do it anyway. After Jesus rises from the dead, he says, go into all nations, baptize them, teach them, feed them my supper. And every nation that says it doesn't, every nation it has ever come to has said, it doesn't like, look like it will work. I said that so poorly. Every nation it has ever come to says, it doesn't look like it will work. Every people who get tired or lazy say, this can't be enough, and we drift and we pull away. But the fact is that this is the miraculous catch of fish writ tenfold into humanity to catch you. This word and this sacrament, these stories, old good ones about Jesus, that they're not going to tear them down. They want to get rid of Stonewall Jackson and forget the thing that he taught us, which was that he was fighting for in conscience and struggle with it and read memoirs about them and learn how we cannot be like them. Want to forget all that? That's fine live in whatever country you want, but I'm going to remain one who knows the stories of Zion. And I will not back down on any of these things. And I am convinced in this too, then, that you won't either. You got so much stronger in the last three months than you have any idea about, personally, individually, spiritually. And I am going to not let this crisis go to waste. I'm going to hit you in the face as hard as I can every time you show up 
to not let you forget what world you live on and what God you have to see you through the entire thing. More to be said in the days ahead. 32 minutes, you tell me what you thought. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let us continue.